said, I realized even, even as I was prepping this week, I just read the story. And I felt that if I just had to stand up today and read the story, it would be effective. Even without any additional commentary <laughs> and notes. There's just so much in this, this story. How many, how many of you aren't familiar with the story of Gideon? Don't, no shame. Put your hand up. Yeah. And for those of you that have heard it, I, poor Lisa, you've sat in my home group where we looked at this. <laughs> But I trust that the Holy Spirit's going to use it. So, Judges chapter 6. And okay, I've given on Michelle like half the Old Testament. But uh, we'll just skim through various parts. So, in verse 11. Let's start there. If you've got your Bible open in front of you. I'm reading from the ESV. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds? That our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you, or is it not I that is sending you? And Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will stay till you return. So let's just press a bookmark there. One of the first things here that you need to know is um, in the book of, book of Judges, it's probably one of the most depressing times in Israel's history. I mean, much of the Old Testament, you see the cycle happening. And if you wanted to draw it, it's almost like a cycle. You have idolatry or apostasy. Israel turns away from God. Then, then they slide down a slippery slope into oppression. Maybe like one of the heights will come after them. The Amalekites uh, or the Philistines or one of those. Start oppressing them. And then God raises up a deliverer or a judge or a king. And then the graph goes back up again. And then there's a time of rest. But then what happens again? Back down again. It's, it's quite hard reading it. Um, sometimes just as long as a judge or a king is around... His rest and God's spirit and anointing would be upon this person. And the minute they die, I don't know if it was almost like to the day, <laughs> the people go worship the foreign gods again. And that, that's why when the new covenant comes and God says, I'm going to give you a heart that will not turn away from me, then it really hits home what he's actually doing there. But look at another thing about Gideon here. So that, that's the context. And... Um, the angel of the Lord is, we discussed this recently, the angel of the Lord is often debated as, 
is this the, the pre-incarnate Jesus? I can't definitively say yes or no. Ultimately, it just means the messenger of the Lord. So when this person speaks, it's literally as if God is speaking. Um, the interesting thing is, though, even in the book of Acts, after Jesus has ascended, you have Philip. Remember Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? The angel of the Lord appears. So I read that, I'm like, okay, is that Jesus again coming back? What's happening? But it's basically just the messenger, messenger of the Lord. But check what's so interesting about verse 12. Angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. And what's your impression of Gideon when you read the story? Timid, coward. And he says, he doesn't say, hey Gideon, whip of all whips. He says, hey Gideon, mighty man of valor. And you read that and you wonder, like, okay, does this angel know something I don't know? And, and there's a sense that God, God calls something as, as not as if it is. And the thing is, he's not, he's not even saying, hey Gideon, you're going to even find this might and strength inside of you. We're going to discover it. That's not even an answer. Where does the might and the valor come from? From the Lord himself. And do you, know, do you know why I mention that? Because if you, if you walk into, I don't know if people still walk into bookstores these days, because everything's online. But if you walk into a bookstore, there's often, I often walk into like exclusive books and I'm looking for the religion section. And I go see what Christian books are there. But there's normally a huge section which is like spirituality, self-help. It's got all these different names. Like, what are the other names? Like psychology, that kind of thing. Eso, I don't know how to use the word esoteric. Do they? But most of, do you know most of the philosophy of the world, even its religious views, it'll take a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of New Age, a little bit of this, and it's ultimately saying, use these things, use God to empower you. You're ultimately the center. God is a means to you becoming mighty and strong. And a self, a self-discovery, and find the hidden strength within. You read the story of Scripture, and God is not coming to each person and saying, "Find the power within." He's saying, "Find the power on high that I have." So your spotlight in your Christian walk, God's not wanting your spotlight to stay on you. The more, the more you mature in your faith, actually, that spotlight should shift inch by inch, more and more to Him. Because when you start off, even times of depression, I, I find that the times I'm most almost spiritually depressed, 99% of the time, I'm keeping, for some reason, I'm keeping the spotlight on me. And when, I, when it's there, I'm not finding joy, inexpressible joy. When you look at yourself on a Monday morning, you find joy inexpressible. <laughs> no. find like... <laughs> Heaviness inexpressible sometimes. So God, God is wanting our spotlight to be on Him. Because there's a joy and a peace in that place. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> so, so this bit here, just the, the first section we've looked at. He's also threshing grain. Threshing grain, what you do is you use a, 
uh, like a pitchfork, winnowing fork, and you'd throw up the, to separate the chaff, which, which you would need the wind to kind of blow, wind, and then you would have the, the grain or the wheat that would be left over. But Gideon's hiding from his enemies, so he's doing this basically on the wine farm, in the wine press, hiding from his enemies, from the Midianites. And this is this context where the Lord meets him. So when we read these stories, don't just read this as if this is an Old Testament story and you must just replace Gideon with Estian or Lisa and then you become the hero. I want us to read this and say, like, what does this tell me about God and his ways? And if Jesus said that all of Scripture points to him and his gospel, we're going to read this and go, how does this point to Jesus? Not just, you're not asking where's Jesus in the story as a character. That's not, you won't always find him as a character in, in each story. But what does this tell me about him and his ways? Does that make sense? Sometimes we, we can just read it as if it's folk, folklore, it's like story. Um, anything else in that first section that stands out? I think it's also just the Lord's patience with man and his weakness. So Gideon has literally the angel of the Lord speaking to him. And his first response is actually quite sassy. He's basically putting his finger up. It's a spicy response saying, if the Lord is really with us, why then are we being so oppressed? And why has the Lord forsaken us? The Lord is incredibly patient with man. The Lord's incredibly patient with you and me. We think we're holding on so tight one second and the next day we're like, Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Lord's saying, I, I'm right here. So we're, we're just up and down, but he is so patient with us. And, and the story here, it starts setting the scene of Gideon saying, how can I save Israel? And I venture to say, he's still asking the wrong question there. If God comes to you and says, we're going to win this great victory. You don't look at yourself and say, no, that doesn't seem possible. Think, think of Moses when God asked Moses to go to Pharaoh. Moses went through a serious doubt in time and had to have multiple signs to convince him. But it's almost like what God does with every Old Testament character and every Christian is he says, take the spotlight off of yourself because you're going to get nowhere in the kingdom. If the spotlight is fixed on yourself, you're literally going to feel like you're stuck in the blocks. Think, think even of healing, this healing equipment. If you're going to go pray for people in this might of yours and the power of your faith and your holiness and stuff, you're going to be paralyzed. You need to go, not paralyzed, but like spiritually paralyzed. You need to go out there saying, I'm going not in the name of James, but in the name of the Lord Jesus. Right. It's a different power. Um, amen. So let's just pop our heads into the next section. Some, some of it I'm, I'm going to skip, but... Well, actually, I'll just summarize the next tiny bit. So Gideon says, I'm going to bring you a present to the angel of the Lord. And what this is, this was just custom back then. So if, if you had someone to your home, you would often make them a meal. Which is a good, good custom to have. So, so <laughs> yeah, we should keep that going, actually. Um, even if it's not the angel of the Lord, but just like someone in your com. 
Um, so what, what Gideon ultimately does is he uh, makes some meat and unleavened cakes. And then ultimately, you don't have to read there, but it gets to this point. It says, the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire springs up from them. And Gideon goes, okay, wow. We can actually put that up. Verse 22. I hope you can see a lot of Gideon in yourself, actually. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abyssalites. And as I was reading this, I felt the Lord tell me something actually very important insight on what's happening here. Is that I think that first bit where God is trying to catch Gideon's attention. Gideon's almost prevented from recognizing this is the Lord. Because of what? His own fears and insecurities. And just thinking about that, I thought there's so many times in our Christian walk where I think we can get so blinded by it. Like you feel like that's all you see. Is your weaknesses and your insecurities. And it almost blocks you from hearing the word of the Lord coming and I, I, I really trust that even as we look at God's word today, that God would, God would almost take you out of the way. Out of your, not your rear view mirror, mirror your front, <laughs> like the thing you're focusing on, that he would take you out the way. Um, and that it would almost unclog that and you'd be able to hear the voice of the Lord to you. Are you ready for some reading again? I don't want to bog you guys down because there's a bit here. So you, you get to the next mission that God gives Gideon, and that's in verse um, 25. And ultimately what's happened here is Israel have compromised on the Lord, and they've gone and taken Baal. You guys might know the name of Baal. One of the main gods in, in, the, in the land of Canaan. And they've set up altars to him and stuff. So Gideon's first mission is to dethrone the temple of the, the kind of, what was it called? The, not the temple, the altar of Baal in his hometown. That is the first mission the Lord gives him. And it says because he was so af- too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. But at least he's making progress. Like even though it's happening at night, he's doing it. Something's happening. And then that next section, we, we don't have to read the bit, but ultimately they, they wake up the next day, they realize, I don't know if they did like a fingerprint analysis or something, but they find out, this is Gideon. Gideon's done this. And the men of the town rise up that they may kill him. That's how much the people have been deceived. They felt literally like, this is our God now. And God is contending for those people. Do you see that? God chooses a man, Gideon, contends for his own people that are literally whoring after other gods. And that's the story of the Old Testament, is the heart of God doing that. And then let's read from uh, verse 32. Is it up? Okay. 
So it says, Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet. And the Abyssalites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And you'll see that he sent messengers to three different tribes of Israel to gather men. But something interesting about the Spirit of the Lord there is we were, we were doing a guy's Bible study recently. One of the guys said, oh my word, I thought the Holy Spirit didn't exist in the Old Testament. And, and I, I wouldn't even, I'm not even going to laugh at that question because that's sometimes a genuine question. Because we're so conditioned that at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out. But if you read your Bibles, you'll see He's not often called the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. But it's capital S, the Spirit of the Lord. And when you read of the judges, when you read of King David, all of them, what is the word that often says? And the Spirit rushed upon, clothed. So the Spirit back then, His working, was not so much habitation. Right now, He inhabits you. You are literally the temple of God. Makes sense. Back then it was like visitation. He would visit Himself. He would equip His men. So that's what's happening here. Again, there is a judge and a deliverer. God has raised up Gideon. And He clothes him with this power. But from that point, you expect Gideon to almost be impenetrable. (laughs) But look what happens. The famous bit he does next is he still says in verse 36, Then Gideon said to God, If you will say... Yes, if I was God, I'd be handling this differently. (laughs) Can I get a witness? Wouldn't you? You just give him a snort club. You just mean like... says, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said... Behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, then it is dry on the ground, then I shall know. And ultimately, God answers both sides. The one day, the next day, Gideon wakes up, the fleece is dry. He says, Lord, just one more night. Do the opposite. The opposite happens. Now the fleece is wet. <laughs> How many of us are guilty of that? When the Lord has actually promised you things, and this isn't great faith that's happening here, putting out a sign. This is weak faith. The Lord has said, I have already said this. And you're saying, but let's just make doubly, doubly sure. And by the end of that, now we get to my literal favorite part. Okay. Chapter 7. So the people have renamed Gideon at this point Jerubal, which in a sense is like a, probably gave him a bit of um, courage because I think it meant uh, let Baal contend against him. So he's gaining some, he's becoming a mighty man of valor here, actually. So look at chapter 7. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them, by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said, here's the best. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many. For me to give the Midianites into your hand. I'm not even going to read on. Think about that for a second. If, this, if you brought in the greatest co- um, army commander, whatever, and you said we need some consulting, and you 
paying daily fees, and he gives you advice. What would his advice be if there were 32,000 versus 120,000? Is he going to say the people with you are too many? <laughs> He's going to say, hold on, we need to start recruiting. This is not enough. We're outmanned, we're outgunned. God looks at this and says, no, no, there's too many with you, Gideon. We can't win. But what's his reason? What is God's reason there? He says, unless Israel boasts over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. How profound is that? And what I wrote here is I said, this, I don't think this wasn't just about God's glory. Primarily, this is about God's glory. But if, the, if God is forming a people here for himself, Israel, and they start believing that it's their own hand that provides for themselves, that wins their victory, what is their dependence on God going to become? It's going to become God is almost a means to our end. So I think when you read this and we say, God, what does this teach me about your ways? Is I think God so wants to, if you pictured yourself like a building, God so wants to knock away all scaffolding around that building that you put up. So that at the end of the day, everyone's going to say that was impossible for James to do that. That was impossible for that church to do that. He doesn't want the world to look at it and say, what's happening in Joshua and Weinberg kind of makes sense. He wants people to look at this and go, that, that's God. That can't be man. Makes sense. That is God's way. And think, think about the various scenarios we could go and look at in your life where you're facing your own Midianites, your own enemy. And you may be thinking, God, why are you making me weaker in this battle? And God is saying, you've got this the wrong way around. In my kingdom, weakness is actually sometimes strength. Most often. That's why we've got to, we've got to understand God's ways. They're so different to ours. So that probably is one of my favorite verses in the whole Old Testament. The people with you are too many for me to save you. And then in verse 3, he says, Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people... Saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned. And 10,000 remained. How many of you would have been part of the 22,000 returning home? If you were looking at, you know it says the Midianite army was so great that it looked like locusts. And back then when you had a swarm of locusts, they would black out the sky. That's how many there would be. So 22,000 remain. And what does the Lord say? He says the people, 10,000 remain. He says the people are still too many. <laughs> Gideon's going, okay. <laughs> Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. And likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. So first of all, God's not saying in, in the way of the world that there's a more dignified way of drinking 
and not. I don't think that's the point here. Okay. I think all God is doing is saying, I'm going to use whatever means to whittle these people down so that there is hardly anything left. And it says, all those um, who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. You've gone from 32,000 to 300 men. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. Not you will save you. The 300 men, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets and they sent the rest of Israel home. So what happens here is you've got the battle, the final battle happening. And what kind, of, what kind of weapons do the Israelites fight with? Can you remember? Trumpets? <laughs> Clay jars. And torches inside the jars. Against 120,000 armed men. What story does that remind you of? Trumpets. Jericho. Going around like the strongest walled city. And God says you're going to take trumpets and shout at it. And that's how we're going to win. So we, I'll, I'll just summarize this next section here, but I want to show you again just the grace of God and His patience towards you. In verse 9, it says, That same night the Lord said to Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. So still God is saying, Gideon, if you're still doubtful, I will make a way. And you shall fear what they say, and afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So then Gideon says, okay, Lord, I'll take you up on that deal. Goes down with his servant to the camp, and God graciously allows him to overhear two Midianites sitting by the campfire, casually having a conversation, and one of them says, I had a dream. And he says, in the dream, I dreamed that a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon. So they knew about Gideon. This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. It's almost like these guys don't even know what they're saying at that point. I think the Lord's just using it. They're like, God has given the camp what? And Gideon's like, okay. It's just, God's so gracious to him. And he goes back, and now there's no more signs. He doesn't need any more signs. He's like, okay, okay. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of this dream, he worshipped. And he divides the 300 men into three different companies. Puts trumpets in their hands and empty jars with torches. And they come up with a battle cry. It says, when you blow the trumpet, everyone must say, for the Lord and for Gideon. And then what's funny is then this is, this is happening at night. Then these 300 men fan themselves all around this camp of Midian with their trumpets, their torches, and their clay jars. And when they see the sign from Gideon, they, get, they mess up their war cry. I don't know how they mess it up. They say, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. They don't even have swords. So I don't know why they're shouting that. 
But they say a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And these men, these Midianites, at night time, picture this must have seen, you know, like almost on these hills around them, lights being shaken in empty jars with trumpets blowing. Like what the heck must you think is coming? And they start panicking and attack each other <laughs> out of frenzy. And it says that, where does it say? It says, God set, I think, the sword of each man against each other. It's almost like Gideon is secondary in this whole thing. God could have literally just gone and won this war. Would you agree? But he graciously says, I'm going to use Gideon and Israel just so they actually are part of my glory. They're not the ones winning this war. It's him. And then you get to the end of that and they start pursuing them and, and the rest of Israel starts kind of takes this as courage and starts plundering. But why I wanted us to, to look at this story is because the way you start out your Christian walk, whatever mindset you have, is what's going to kind of perpetuate itself as you carry on. So if you're sitting here and you've come into Christian walk thinking, this is something where I read this Bible and I improve daily and I get stronger and I recommit and I do my best and I carry this weight, you're going to miss the part. And quite likely God might actually resist you because you're proud. He says He gives grace to the humble. So when you read these stories, we go, okay, wow. How did I even get into the people of God? What were, what were the qualifications to get into the people of God? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and let's look at a few qualifications. I want to finish off with the scripture. I don't share any pages turning, so I guess it's electronic. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 Paul, Paul starts off in verse 18 he says the message of the cross is folly it's foolishness to the, those who are perishing but to us are being saved is the power of God and I think we've got from verse 25 and he goes on here and he says for the foolishness of God is wiser than men Think of this in light of the story we've just read. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. And I'm saying this if I'm reading this to you and me. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God... But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Amen.
What do you think about those qualifications? Do you meet those criteria? Were you weak? Those things that were despised in the world, the things that are not yet as they should be. And God says, those are the things I'm going to choose. In the same way, he says, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. Even though all are sick. I came for those who know that they're sick. I came for those who know that they're poor in spirit. And they're bankrupt apart from a saviour. And if this doesn't click for you, there's almost like a, there's a breakthrough that needs to happen in your spirit. And, and do you know how I would summarize it? Is your focus needs to shift from what primarily, from what you can give to God, to what God gives to you. That should primarily be, that is the victorious Christian life. If you're obsessed daily in this Christian walk with what I can give to God, and you take your anchor and you lodge it into that, you're going to find no joy, you're going to find no peace. But if you fix your eyes on, what has He given to me? He hasn't just given me wisdom, He is my wisdom. He's not just a means to an end, He is my righteousness. I have no other. He is my sanctification. He is my redemption. Can you say that? Or do you just believe, yeah, He kind of helped me with redemption. He helps me with wisdom when I lack it not. Hey? Or is or do you look at yourself with sober judgment and go, there is no genuine wisdom here, righteousness, qualification, therefore I look at the man Jesus and he must be everything. Have you taken all your poker chips, slid them across the table and said I'm all in? On him. He's my prize pony. Oh, I won't call him a pony. But that's my horse. I'm banking on him. Makes sense. But I promise you, if you don't tap into that daily, when you're reading his word and you're having communion with him, and you're still concerned with, am I doing enough? Am I giving enough? How's my devotion? How's my obedience? If you're basing your joy on your level of obedience, you're not going to find much joy. You've got to base your joy on what Christ has done for you. Then it's going to produce obedience. Make sense? Your joy can't be based on your obedience. As great as you might be sitting here, it's not perfect. You need to take your anchor, place it into Christ. You're going to find joy 24-7 every day. Amen. Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Does this feel like it's sinking in? I think that's my time. Why don't we just close our eyes, please?